Hello, um, welcome everyone to AJC's uh, Teletown Hall about the tech industry and COVID. Um, this is our seventh webinar that we've done. We've had a variety of topics with local officials, um, higher education, AISD. And so we're really thankful for our panelists who have just taken some quarantine time <laughs> to uh, be with us to talk about this important topic. We also wanna thank the Begum Group uh, as our community partner and the Entrepreneurs Foundation. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Frances Jordan and I volunteer as the Director of Operations for the Austin Justice Coalition. And my day job, I actually work at Bazaar Voice. Um, it's a tech company here in Austin that was actually uh, founded by one of our panelists, Brett Hurt, who I've actually never met. So nice to meet you, but I've talked about him a lot as I serve as the internal communications and engagement manager there. But enough about me. Just want to quickly tell you about AJC if you don't know who we are. So we were started in 2015 and we're a nonprofit that um, is a racial justice group that educates and builds community power for people of color who live in Austin, Texas that need support, community, and liberation. Um, we volunteer in a number of ways. One of the main ways is our, our stellar policy team um, that that uh, advocates on uh, at the Capitol and at City Hall around uh, policing, housing, education, and mental health. We also have other programs like our free Saturday School for People of Color, uh, Higher Learning, Project Orange, Black Art Matters, and Black Food Week. So I am one of your moderators, and we have a fellow uh, moderator, Maria Brown Spence, who's gonna introduce herself. Hello everyone, my name is Maria Brown Spence. I'm the program manager at the Entrepreneurs Foundation. I'm not gonna give a huge overview as my CEO, Eugene Sepulveda, is on this panel. Um, so I will let him give more of a discussion on EF. But we are here in the community working with um, tech companies and startups to build their employee um, engagement initiatives when it comes to philanthropy, something we're truly passionate about. Um, so we look forward to hearing more about you all in the tech industry and seeing how Austin can pivot due to COVID-19. Also for all of our attendees, just wanna let you know that there will be opportunity for question and answers um, from the audience. Please feel free to um, put any of those answers in the chat or questions that you may have. We'll try to get time at the end to answer a few of those, but if we are unable to, we'll make sure that we have those recaps somewhere for you all. All right, so I'm going to introduce who we have on our panel. I'll introduce everyone by their name first, and then I'll have everyone introduce themselves individually because I believe that you are the best person to talk about yourself. So we have Eugene Sepulveda with the Entrepreneurs Foundation, Brett A. Hurt, Data.World, Eric Starkloff, National Instruments, Marissa Tarleton, Aceable, Michael Ward Jr., Austin Urban Tech Movement. So we'll go ahead and start with Eugene. Uh-oh, you're muted, Eugene. Good reminder. Uh, Maria, thank you. Francis, thank you. And um, I, it's uh, our honor, Entrepreneurs Foundation, to be involved with you guys today. I had intended when I, when Francis and Maria said, hey, let's get three or four, you know, people really involved in the tech industry that are making a lot of differences every day, particularly during the pandemic, um, you know, getting Michael Ward involved and Brett Hurt and Marissa and Eric, and I thought we, I was done. I was like, you know, what can I contribute? Um, but but kind of like what I do in my day job is I just happen to know 
really great people who do really good stuff and bring them together often. So uh, I'm going to say my number one contribution contribution here today after Maria is um, our other panelists, and I'm most interested in hearing from them. All right. Thank you, Brett. Yeah, well, hey, everybody. It's really good to be here and um, really good to be here alongside all of you and Eugene and Marissa and Eric on this panel. Um, I, I long time entrepreneur in Austin. I was actually born and raised here. That's that's courses through my veins. Um, I love Austin and love what it stands for. I know we have our own, you know, um, equality issues and stuff like that, but I think um, we have a lot of conscientiousness in this city and I love that about it. Um, I'm a six time serial entrepreneur. My most recent company about four years in, it's called data.world and it's the world's largest collaborative data community. It's grown really quickly in this time of COVID-19 as people flock to it to look for all types of COVID-19 data sets. You can find those at data.world slash resources slash coronavirus. I'll put it in the chat. And um, we, uh, we make money by allowing companies to use us in private to collaborate on their private data um, amongst their teams. And that's been taken off too, because as you think about the facts on the ground for these companies, they haven't changed this quickly since the Great Recession. So it's a it's enormously uh, disruptive time for so many companies. And some of them, it's an existential crisis. Like at the very beginning of last quarter, we were about to sign one of the largest cruise lines in the US. The latest article is they may not even stay in business. I mean, they literally went from buying data.world almost in February to we're not even sure if they'll be around, which is really scary. Um, and it just really breaks my heart to see how many people have lost their jobs out there. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that, but we're our part. We're a B corporation as well as my first B corporation. And we're uh, really proud um, to carry that kind of conscious capitalist uh, flag. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Brett. Next we have Eric. Hi, everyone. Uh, so Eric Starkloff. So National Instruments is uh, kind of, you know, pretty good sized multinational company headquartered here in Austin, but people don't know what we do. So maybe I could de demystify that a little bit. If you're an engineer, you know what we do. But to the average person, it's uh, less known. So um, we actually make sort of software centric technology that engineers and enterprises around the world use to build the products that we all use every day. So they use our products to design and build the things that uh, we use like our phones and our cars and uh, our aircraft and everything in between. And so, as I mentioned, we're, we're a homegrown Austin company. We have over 7,000 employees, 2,200 of them are here in Austin. One of my kind of unique challenges is navigating all this. I've got employees in 50 different countries. Um, so it's a very dynamic situation. And then fun fact about me, I've been at the company a long time, but I took over as CEO on February 1st. So, uh, you know, fun timing from a, a pandemic as my first order of business as I took on the, this role. So it's, uh, we'll get into some of the, uh, some of the things I've learned over the past uh, couple of months. But again, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on the panel. Thank you so much. Next up, Marissa. Thank you, um, th and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here and talk about um, 
sort of what's happening in the companies that I've been operating with as well as learning from all of you. So I'm excited to be here. Um, so my name is Marissa Tarleton and I'm currently the president at Aceable, which is an Austin homegrown company that um, is a mobile first online training and certification platform that started in drivers, driving driver's ed and um, driving, and now moving rapidly into real estate and other categories for online training and certification. Uh, as you can imagine, a really important need right now more than ever, um, as we have unemployment um, at all time highs and this significant need for online certification and training. So I'm really excited to be a part of this company. I've only been there for a few weeks, uh, so I'm learning fast. Uh, pre previously, I was the CEO at Retail Me Not, which is another Austin homegrown company um, where I was, I was at Retail Me Not for about five years, started as the CMO, um, marketing as my background, um, operating as my strength, specifically in tech companies with a strong B2C orientation. Um, so I've actually seen COVID through both the Retail Me Not lens as well as the Aceable lens over the last couple of months. So I'll be able to talk a little bit about both dynamics as well as um, changing jobs in the middle of COVID, if that's an area of interest, uh, which has been uh, which has been interesting. So thanks, thanks again for having me. Thank you. Next up, and last but not least, Michael Ward. All right. Um, so hi everyone, My name is Michael Ward Jr. I'm the president and CEO of Austin Urban Technology Movement. Uh, and our mission is to bridge the gap between the global majority and the tech industry. So we do that through job placement, career development, and networking opportunities. And the reason why I even got involved with Autumn was because I moved to Austin from Boston by way of Oracle. So I got my start in the tech space doing back-end and front-end technology. And while I was at Oracle, I was also responsible for their national employee resource group for their black employees responsible for both recruiting, retention, and upskill mobility um, of their black employees. So when I came here to Austin, I automatically wanted to get involved. And it has been a very interesting four years because the Austin's tech ecosystem has drastically changed uh, from a uh, not so much focus on entry level tech jobs, but more so uh, middle skilled jobs. And what does that do to, uh, to an industry and to an environment that hasn't really been prepared for the growth that we've seen here in Austin? So I'm very excited to be here today to kind of talk through some of the work that we're doing through Autumn, but also here with other great work people are doing here in Austin to ensure that we can have a, a better future when we think about post-COVID-19 and what, uh, what, what does that look like for those that are most impacted, which are low-income, underserved, underrepresented communities. So happy to be here and share our, our expertise and our information. Thank you. Thank you all. See, the best introduction comes from the people themselves. So I'll go ahead and let Francis um, start with some of the questions that we have for our panelists today. Yeah, and I just wanted to quickly frame the conversation and actually our panelists already got there before I even had the opportunity. You know, I wanted to use a quote from the Microsoft CEO Satya that says, our industry does not respect tradition, it only respects innovation. And COVID has drastically made all industries across the spectrum innovate. Right. And so as the tech company, the tech industry is known for innovation. That's really where we want to dig in. And so kicking off with our first question and anyone is able to kind of start here. It's like, what has been the largest or most surprising challenge for your startup company during this time of COVID? Eric, you want to take that or I'll jump in. Um, Go ahead, so, Brad. I'll so follow you up. Yeah, so for us, um, 
the, you know, like I said, we, we entered this quarter um, with a pipeline where we felt pretty good about achieving our goals and then um, saw, you know, some companies just completely go away. I mean, it, it's like a meteor struck the, the earth <laughs> and these companies aren't even sure if they're going to stay in business and it's really a tragic time for them and a tragic time for us dealing with a virus that there's no vaccine for and it's very mysterious in terms of who it kills and why and we know that the majority of the deaths are for for older people but nobody wants to infect older people these are these are very important people in our society and and so you know we had to do a tremendous amount of work on our pipeline i have never studied the stock charts of our um, prospects so much. I mean, I don't trade stock in any of them. And if they were near a 52 week high and they were in our pipeline, you know, pretty far in it, we were almost for sure gonna get that deal. And if they weren't, we weren't. Um, and there, there were a few companies that signed this last quarter and we did beat our goals this, this past quarter, which ended April 30th. And those are our pre-COVID-19 goals. So I'm really proud about that. Our team really rallied. I've got an amazing team, amazing culture. And, um, and there were some people that signed that were, really were impacted, that this was an existential risk for them and they need to get their hands on um, their internal data to decide how to navigate forward. Um, so we're helping those people too. I don't want to sound crass and we're only helping the wealthiest companies in our pipeline that are least affected. That's not, that's not it at all. But, you know, when you're a startup, you're in a fight for survival. You, you really are. Um, you're not, you're not cruising along with, uh, with an enormous amount of um, installed revenue. And, um, you know, for some companies that actually had that enormous amount of installed revenue, they're in a fight for their survivals. I mean, you know, look at what Marriott just reported, for example. Um, you know, so it's a really, really challenging time. The other big adjustment has just been getting used to working like this. I mean, look at where we all are. This is intimate, right? We're in each other's homes in a way. And so there's, there's some beauty in that, that we need to acknowledge and, and appreciate. Um, and there's been some amazing events done to, you know, including today where the Blue Angels flew, but, you know, there's been some amazing, you know, musicians and everything else coming out of the woodwork. Willie Nelson's been all, all over the place, you know, uh, singing his music um, for free online and trying to raise money for Farm Aid and a bunch of other causes. And so there, there's been a radical adjustment on that front too. And how do we work efficiently in this way? How do we work without burning out? There's no separation anymore between home life and working life. It's just all merged into one. I mean, I'm not a great role model for that. I've been working over 80 hours a week for the past eight weeks. Um, but I, I feel like this is a time where as a leader, I've got to lean in like, like never before and I've got to communicate like crazy. Um, but you know, one of the decisions we made today is to have everybody and our employ and our company take a forced holiday next Friday. We have our all hands this Friday to kick off this quarter, and next Friday everybody's taking a forced you know day off, um, just so we can manage, you know the the level of burnout and everything else. So it's an intense time. Make make no mistake about it. But 
just just learning how to effectively work in this way. And I think we've done a good job of that um, for the most part, but managing burnout is really important. Yeah, I guess for, for us, you know, we're, we're, we have the benefit that our, our customer base is different than what Brett described. It's pretty steady. So they're, they're all uh, moving forward, I guess. Um, for me, the thing, the theme of this thing has been kind of like you posed the question, Francis, it's been like incredible learning for the whole organization um, because you're thrust into this whole new environment. And, and the surprises have been uh, these kind of silver linings. I mean, there's, there's plenty of challenges that we face in our business and our customers face and everything else. But because you're um, put in a situation where you sort of forced to experiment more and try new things, um, we're finding so many things that, that, that are working better, you know, whether it's the way we're communicating to our customers and, you know, the fact that there's, again, there's silver linings and the ability as a multinational company to now I can personally connect to more customers virtually than I can when I'm flying all around the world all the time. Um, similarly, employee communications, we typically like a big company, you know, we have this sort of cascaded communication to everyone. Well, I'm doing, I'm doing weekly videos and all employee town halls. And we have, you know, all 7,000 employees on a Q&A session yesterday and it works. Uh, and so we're, we're, you know, we're going to take that stuff forward for sure. And so I've been, I guess, surprised at how much we've learned and how much learning there's been that, that we're going to take forward from this. Um, and, and it will change the way that we do business and the way that we run the, the company for sure going forward. Just one thing I'll add, I agree with um, everything Brett and Eric said. Um, one of the biggest challenges that I've learned over the last couple of months is one, there's going to be winners and losers, obviously from a um, category perspective around um, areas of growth. And that's been fascinating to see, but I've been most surprised at um, the people dynamic in this environment and the importance of making sure that your employees feel comfortable um, because they're incredibly uncomfortable right now. And so I think if anything, and I couldn't agree with Eric's point more on communication um, and even Brett's point around giving people time off, there's incredible instability, there's job security concerns, there's managing children at home while trying to be super productive, there's no end to the work day, um, there's anxiety about what if my company goes under, and I think that the stress levels there are significant, and so if anything, I feel like the role of leaders has almost gone, it's become very personal around how do you make your employees and your organization feel comfortable? How can you communicate with them with such frequency that you keep them calm and you give them stability and you're making sure that you're thinking about peace of mind. And so for me, um, while I have loved that piece of leadership, it has been surprising for me and it's totally changed the dynamic that I think a lot of leaders are having with their employees. Hey, Francis, um, I wanna add in, um, you know, one of my roles is I serve as the mayor's treasurer and a senior advisor. So before we announced um, stay-at-home rules, um, he asked me to get with restaurants and bar owners. And we, we weren't telling them that this was coming, but we wanted to start that conversation. We wanted people to be prepared to be planning. I gotta say, what I've, what I've watched from a different group of businesses were the recalibration of expectations and a whole lot of innovation. Um, my first conversation with about 40 different restaurant owners on a Saturday, the Saturday before stay-at-home orders, is they're like, well, Eugene, do we have to be prepared to shut down for two weeks? Or, you know, will it really be two weeks? I was like, guys, I mean, it could be, it could be the rest of the year. 
and, and people weren't thinking that way. Um, very quickly, very quickly, it went to, okay, you know, let's, let's um, quantify our, our overhead. Let's, let's, um, what, what can we do for the employees? We brought in the Texas Workforce Commission, um, Workforce Solutions. They were, you know, I, I saw um, small business owners that didn't think in MBA terms very quickly get it and go to that. You know, what's my, what are my marginal costs? What's my monthly nut now? What can I get it down to? Who do I need to go and negotiate with? Landlords, vendors, um, what can I get from the government? So I, I have to say the mayor and I have been extraordinarily impressed with the rallying of, of um, innovation and business practices by a lot of small business owners. Um, we need to help them more. You know, Steve asked me to raise money through Stand with Austin. We raised about $700,000. I think everybody on here gave money to it. Um, and that went to those most impacted by the cancellation. You know, second phase of that was ATX, um, Altogether ATX, and they've raised four million bucks. So, uh, the the confluence of of public and private and community um, is also a lesson to to all of us. I think. Michael, did you want to add anything to that question? The only thing that I would add. Um, is that given what is going on right now in our society, uh, the biggest challenge that I've seen, not necessarily from an internal standpoint with our organization, but more so externally with the community, in a sense that it's very hard to get the information that people need um, and also get information that is simplified. Um, I feel like a lot of the resources that are out there have been, um, have been um, kind of, what's the word? Uh, influence a whole bunch of jargon and language and difficult process that if you're not in the know, if you don't have the right resources, it's very difficult for you to really know what the next step is and how can you put yourself in a position to fully take advantage of all these resources. We're seeing from an entrepreneur standpoint, we're seeing it from a teacher standpoint, we're seeing it from a parent standpoint, where now parents are working but also homeschooling their children at the same time while they're also trying to think about how they're going to cover their bills and what that looks like. So now individuals are having to juggle not just uh, work, uh, but work while they're also living their lives. And your students are kind of going back and where the children are going back and forth between online learning or not having the right tools. Uh, so the real challenge that I've seen is that we have not leveraged technology the best way we, we could have in order to make something like this be as seamless as possible. Uh, because I know for a fact a lot of individuals in the tech space, all they did was pick up their laptop and go home. That that's really what the major change was. Um, but for other industries, it wasn't as an easy transition. Um, their complete lives were turned upside down. Individuals lost jobs. Individuals right now are not sure where they're going to live. Um, and for them to get the resources that they need, well, first, you have to have internet access. You have to know where the link is. You have to be able to, to dissect the information, how to apply it. There's a lot of barriers that have prevented people from uh, from being able to, to really bounce back as soon as they as you would like them, so they will put themselves in a better situation moving forward. 
All right, thank you, Michael. Well, that was a perfect transition to a question that I would like to direct to Eugene on just employee engagement and philanthropy. Um, how do you think that's going to change or pivot due to COVID with not as many employees wanting to get engaged because of all of the other dynamics that they have happening? What can you see the tech companies in Austin doing to still make sure that philanthropy is a priority? Well, you're, I mean, you're seeing, I mean, look who's stepping up all over the world. I mean, Bill, Bill Gates is now, Bill and Melinda have dedicated as much of their foundation as necessary to fight COVID. Eric and National Instruments gave a million dollars to to the, the ATA. Altogether, altogether ATA. Yeah. Yeah. No, a million dollars. Michael, Michael and Susan Dell redirected a hundred million dollars um, to COVID in the markets where they're where they're working. Michael was one of the first people I wrote about Stand with Austin to, to get some advice about it. And, you know, I mean, you know, just in Nurses Week, just appreciate nursing. I mean, Maria, something that you helped lead, you know, mostly the tech community gave $60,000 just to buy 5,800 meals to celebrate nurses over the last week. And um, so I think, I think the tech community, in part, because we tend to have more money than the rest than the rest of the community today. Um, but they certainly stepped up. You and I have been talking about, about engagement and um, right now, a lot of people are, are doing the engagement we need. They're taking care of you know, little ones, themselves, spouses, older ones, getting their jobs done. I, I think I want to explore with, you know, Eric and Marissa and Brett and Michael and Francis and, um, and Chaz at our companies. What do what what can EF help, you know, our companies do for their employees? Maybe instead of of being focused on going out for spring service day or fall service day. There's things that collectively we can do. Um, you know, should Stephen and I produce an hour, you know, once a week that that kids being homeschooled can, you know, turn into? And can Brett and Deborah do that? Can Eric do that? I mean, there's, I think collectively, there's individual things that get a big lift um, all over the company. I've been trying to talk Stephen Tomlinson into being the new Mr. Rogers, um, but he gets mad at me for saying that. He could know. do that job pretty well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Hey, I mean, the... you know, Eric, from your perspective, I mean, community engagement, obviously you guys have always been involved. You yeah. just gave that million dollars. What, what else do you wish you saw happening? Well, actually, I was going to make a context on that because we gave the million dollars to Altogether ATX, but we also gave a million and a half to other uh, organizations. So we gave two and a half million dollars, um, which was a big sum for us. And and actually, it was interesting because, you know, we did have to manage at a time when there's a lot of uncertainty for employees, right? That, that there could be a negative to that as well. People are like, oh, my gosh, you know, is my job safe and you're giving money to this. Um, but actually, well, two things. One is we have the ability and and a little bit of a luxury, frankly, but I made the decision that we're not doing any layoffs during this period. So we're able to maintain our whole workforce, which is, which is great. Um, 
And so they have a certain degree of security. But then also, I mean, the reception has been great. You know, I think in times like this, um, a lot of the best of humanity does come out and people are proud to be part of an organization that can have a positive impact. So whether it's, you know, the specific two and a half million dollars that we gave, we also put, um, you know, we have some technology that's used in really important applications like, um, you know, with a primary uh, vendor for uh, ventilator test systems, for example. So we're crit critical in that supply chain. We put a task force of people on that to make sure that we were working hand in hand with GM bringing on a ventilator factory with Dyson in the UK. And, and that's another source that, you know, we did that, you know, we put everyone was volunteering to do that in our organization because they wanted to be part of helping the community in some way deal with this. And I think people want to give a meaningful contribution. And so, um, so that actually has been a really important part of how we've approached this. So I'll chime in here and just uh, comment on, on where funding is going and kind of some of the, the things that I'm, that I'm we're looking to, uh, to address and really combat uh, because there's plenty of resources and opportunities here in Austin. However, what we've seen, at least in the communities and uh, the conversations I've been in, is that funding predominantly goes to the same place. Um, and we haven't seen the impact that we want to see because we still have individuals that are either below poverty, not getting hired at right jobs, not making the salary they need to make, and not really making the transition that they need to make in order to be self-sustaining. Uh, so what I would like to see, which has been in various conversations um, around the task force that the mayor has about um, different foundations that are focusing on the next wave of funding that's coming in, um, in addition to the 2.2 that was released, is some accountability. Accountability to ensure that where the funding is going is actually being being um, redirected to the communities that need it the most. Uh, there's been a huge push around Austin ISD and ensuring that Austin ISD has what they need, but then there's also KIPP Austin, there's other charter schools, there's rural areas. Uh, so there's a lot of individuals that have been um, impacted, I wanna say more so than others, uh, but it's always come back to, okay, well, how can we have the, the, the biggest impact? How can we ensure that we're allowing these individuals to really move from where they are so they're not in the same place where they were after COVID, and instead of us kind of giving funding to the same groups and entities, we get other people at the table that have been doing things more innovatively so we could get a different outcome. Because one of the barriers to entry um, for nonprofits or other organizations is, oh, you either have to be a 501c3, have to be around for three years, you have to have you know, X amount of leadership. Well, you are limiting so many organizations um, from those opportunities, whether that's grants, whether those contracts, whether that's donations, what have you, uh, when we limit individuals from that, we really can see the outcome that we want to have, which will be changing um, the landscape, really changing the tech ecosystem. Um, and then the second thing that I wanted to say just overall and around funding and what that looks like is we definitely have to be more collaborative. Um, ever since I moved here to Austin four years ago, there's been a lot of fragmentation, a lot of silos um, across groups, across industries. Uh, which have created a, uh, a lack of, of excitement to really collaborate and work with one another, uh, but that's when we're most powerful. Especially right now, there are so many organizations that are working on some type of donation drive, so many organizations working on some type of workforce development, so many organizations working on grant funding for, for some something around COVID-19. Well, let's galvanize all those people. Um, that's very similar to what we're doing right now with, with, uh, with the campaign that we've launched. Um, to really get individuals on the same page to ensure that we're not being redundant, to ensure that we are outlining the, the, 
the new future that we want to see and we're holding people accountable along the way by ensuring that we're holding each other accountable. Because if I'm not doing something right now, I'm going to tell Eric, I'm going to tell Marissa and vice versa to ensure that we are, we're being the change that we want to see because COVID-19 right now has created a lot of barriers and we've already seen how funding has been pushed out, but funding has been predominantly pushed out on a first come first serve basis. And for you to be able to get those opportunities, you have to have the right tools, the right resources, the right networks. And if you don't have those, then you're left out and you're, you're missing out on all these different resources that should be coming to you, but unfortunately they're not. Michael, I have, I have to chime in here, which is um, rewind to, to 19, 1990 when I had ideas about what we should be doing about the AIDS crisis. And I would go to elected public officials and they're like, Eugene, go away. I've got an AIDS commission. Go talk to the AIDS commission. And I, w I had the same opinion. I'm like, why are there so many individual organizations doing their own thing? Let's, let's force them to collaborate. I, you know, my way of then finally getting a voice is I went and joined the AIDS commission, became the chair of the AIDS commission. And, and what I learned is you don't want to muzzle or any way inhibit the individual entrepreneurs. And in this way, social entrepreneurs. You want them out there creating. So, so don't try to tell entrepreneurs they have to collaborate with their creativity because they're going to turn you off. But what we can do is we can try to raise some pots of funds that bring them to the table and, and you can create opportunities to collaborate without stepping on their technology or their ideas. Um, you know, and I've talked too much, but I'm going to mention people fund is in Gustavo is an extraordinary resource in this community. I helped start that organization 26 years ago. I'm the chair elect. We just gave them 200,000 that they turned into 2 million. I think Gustavo is going to do a new emergency $9 million fund. And then I've been meaning to get a hold of Colette Pierce Burnett. I'm hearing that, that um, Houston Tillotson is in a very tough place. And I want to know more about that. You know, we cannot afford to lose Houston Tillotson. So I'll stop there. One other point that I wanted to add that I think it's been on my mind. Um, we know I, I've generally worked for companies that have lower ability to give. And so we've, we've looked at the skill set gap in addition to just the funding piece. And, and I think it's a really important thing for us to also collaborate on is with record high um, employee, former employees now looking for jobs who may or may not be comfortable with technology, who may not be necessarily trained for the jobs that'll be hiring in the future. I think, um, a lot of the tech companies in Austin have a responsibility to figure out how to train um, the new workforce, new kids coming out of high school, um, new people looking for jobs to, to be ready for what's next. Um, and that can look like a variety of things. There's so many great organizations that, that do that. At Retail Me Not, we were contributing um, to many on the STEM side in particular, but I think that has to be more coordinated um, and I think we have to go look at what the big skill set gaps are it's not just about access it's about whether or not people have the education and the capability to go get the jobs that we need them to get that'll help them take care of their families so that's another piece that I think is is really a needed area of focus 
Yeah, so, thank, that's uh, actually, that actually kind of leads us into like our next question talking about, you know, one of the things that COVID has really unpackaged and for many people, they already knew that there was a big digital divide, right? Talking about, um, it's really highlighted how many uh, households don't have access to internet or to a tech um, device or people with, and to your point, people with limited um, tech skills. Is there other, I think when we talk about funding and organizations um, that, ha that have um, the resources, is there, is there a, is, can there be innovation around how philanthropy and tech can work together to reduce this digital divide? And just to give an example, one of the biggest things that happens, not only in Austin, but across the country, when schools went 100% remote, they really saw how big of the gaps were to actually educate kids, right? Like it was a struggle, you know, some, you know, more wealthier school districts were able to like, within a week or two, um, were able to push things out because they had the technology, whereas other schools that didn't have the technology really struggled. So was, I just want to kind of hear you all's thoughts around that. Sure. Uh, you want to go ahead, Marissa? Yeah, well, I feel like I, I probably jumped in on that one early. I do think companies in Austin have responsibility to fill the access void from a funding perspective. And as an example, like, you know, Retail Me Not was contributing computers and monitors like in mass to wherever we could make donations, even on loan, right? But that was small scale. Again, the coordinated effort I think is really important. But I think the training piece is what's really top of mind for me. Anything from teaching people how to um, write their resume, right? How can you do that at scale to make sure that it's impactful? I, I'm, I keep going beyond just access and a coordinated effort to to internet and tech, but also just skill set um, and how we can do that at scale, um, not just with one individual organization like a code to college, but something with bigger impact. And I haven't been able to solve it. I'm open to ideas. I'll just chime in on that because this is and so yeah, I think exactly similar perspective as Marissa, we're trying to do the near term stuff to help on digital divide. And it's it's funding and laptops and stuff like that. But the, the broader issue is the access to our field. I mean, we're, we're a technology company with a lot of engineers that sell to engineers. The engineering field is not very diverse. Uh, it's not getting any better. Um, you know, the a number of black engineers is like 5% and it's slightly declined. Um, that's, that's, not, that's not good. And we've got to address that early on. Um, and, and get, you know, the tools, resources, and, and, and kind of sell the field, the interest in the field early on all the way into college. You know, what we're trying to do is um, do our sort of STEM education initiatives, put a focus on that. Uh, we have partnerships with Lego and other organizations to try to do that, but then also um, start to demand from a hiring point of view um, of the universities that we hire from that we expect uh, better diversity in the field so that they have downward pressure in their own outreach programs and, and are attracting the right people. But to Marissa's point, I don't have all the solutions either, but it, it's, it's a big challenge in our field and one that we're trying to make an impact into. Um, but, um, but it's one that I think as a society, we have to have better solutions to. So uh, Francis, I'll chime in here. This is, I think this is probably the, the best question for me to answer. Uh, so the first thing I'll say is that I just posted our website in the chat for everybody. Uh, we've, I've been on daily calls with several different organizations here in Austin, and we recently launched our uh, 
our regional campaign for technology donations. That's mobile hotspots, laptops, and um, desktop laptops as well, uh, but also a regional push for internet access uh, because internet access is a basic necessity. If you do not have internet access, you are automatically missing out of information and therefore limits your political, social, and economic push for anything you're trying to do in society. Um, so I put the website in there for anybody to share it. Feel free to push that out there. And that has several different organizations that are backing that. And I'm actually connecting with uh, the city of Boston later this week and next week to continue the conversation with them um, and city council and et cetera. Um, so that's overall just on that note. But what do companies need to do right now is everything we've been doing plus try a whole bunch of new things. Uh, because what we're currently doing right now is not enough. Regardless of what anybody says, like we still have the challenges today, people are still not getting hired, we have this skills gap that's been created over the years. The skills gap did not happen here in Austin overnight. It's been this way ever since 1980 with the first recession from that happened, then we go back to 2000, go to 2007, 2008, it just kept getting worse and worse and the gap got bigger and bigger. So right now we cannot rely on the current education system. I'm surprised I'm not having, I'm not hearing more conversations about us completely changing our education system. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to kind of see how that conversation goes. But we really need to be thinking about training individuals of the, for the workforce today and tomorrow. We can't just be thinking about the jobs of today because if we do that, we'll end up in a situation where we are right now, where on our job board, we have over 1,400 remote jobs right now that anybody could go and apply for. However, it comes, do you have the skills for those jobs? Are you able to get those jobs? So we keep playing this game of people don't have the experience, but then we're not putting in the time to train them. And for the organizations and entities that are doing some type of career development or training, they only focus on a small number of individuals. Maybe they take a top 10% from a class or a handful of individuals, but the amount of work they're doing is not enough to overcome the gap that is being created. So we need to collaborate. I would say we need to give capital-like investment to nonprofits. We need to focus on individuals that are in the community, that are going to these areas, um, that are able to connect with those that actually need the services the most. We need to have them at the table to really understand the people that we're trying to connect with so we can ensure that we are exposing individuals to the industry the right way, that we are giving them the training that they need so whatever skill sets that they have could be transferable across the industry. Because when you think about technology, there are a lot of jobs right now that are still so new that we haven't really tapped into it. When you think about AI and blockchain and health tech, we're just getting started. Yes, coding has been around for a while. There's a lot on the coding end. And we've always talked about coding, but there's so much more that we could do when we really open up the tech industry and allow technology to fully be in our education system, fully be in our political arena. Then we'll be able to see a different landscape. I would just add is, you know, people have put in their, their favorite, uh, you know, causes here in the chat. Um, I'll throw one additional one in the ring that I think is really helping to address that. And that's code to college led by Matt Stevenson, really good friend of mine. Um, you know, the tech divide is a very real and scary problem because one thing that COVID-19 has done, is it has only accelerated and punctuated the need to move to digital. I mean, it's, it's you know, if, if, if you're a kind of old world business that's not digitally enabled during this time, you're in serious trouble. And 
that's true in society too. And so it really pains me a lot to not see more diverse engineers. And that's why, that's why, you know, I'm proud to donate to Code to College. And I think Matt Stevenson's doing a really good job, but we've got to address that systematic issue. I mean, there's, there's something systematic that's going on with equality. And, you know, one of the things that, that really struck me recently, I wrote a super long blog post on it that you can find at lucky7.io. That's my blogger. I think I mirrored that on Medium, was Ray Dalio gave a talk about, um, you know, some of the systematic kind of like the structural changes that could come out of this. And Ray Dalio, for, for those of you that don't know, he founded uh, Bridgewater Capital, one of the largest hedge funds in the world. And he's probably the best macro, you know, thinker on, you know, on finance in the world. I mean, you know, arguably what, like one of the top for sure. And one of the things that he talked about is that the top 40% um, in the US by wealth, top 40%, that's a pretty big number of people um, spend five times more on average for their children's education than the bottom 60%. That is a huge, huge structural issue. And I just don't get why in this country we can't figure out how to do it better <laughs> and pay teachers more and uh, make all of that much more efficient and have things, you know, ha have the kind of introduction to technology happen at a much earlier age, regardless of, you know, race or, or any, any, you know, gender or anything else. I mean, I, that, that bothers me a lot. And, um, you know, in terms of data.world, you know, you may be thinking like, well, what are we doing about it? Um, we're only 57 people. What, what can we do? Well, look, we are the world's largest collaborative data community. I mean, there are people all over the real world using it. And, data is something that's been kind of treated as a treasure trove for a long time in the world. People that, that own the data, that have the data tend to rule the world. That's been true throughout history. And, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's the, in an information age, it's an extremely valuable asset. It can be extremely valuable leveling for the playing field. And there are now more data sets on data.world for the public than any place else in the world. And it's a highly diverse community. It's a highly global community. And we're seeing more and more companies open up and share data for the first time that everybody can benefit from. And so that's part of the equation. Now that's a little bit like saying that the internet has been a great mobilizer. And you know, part of where you start out, Michael's like some people don't have internet access and that's a, that's a real big problem. Um, and, you know, I know that companies like Google and others are jumping in to, to try to help solve that. But, but for those that have internet access, technology is actually a great leveler. I mean, you can take online classes right now from Stanford for free during this time. You know, I was, I was on, a, on a talk where Dan O'Reilly was speaking. He's the author of Predictably Irrationally. It's kind of like a modern day uh, Pavlov you know, real study of human behavior. And one of the things he said, which I thought was really, was really right on and, and, and pretty beautiful is he said, you know, people are asking, asking him, cause he's such a contrarian thinker, like what should you 
what should they invest in? Like what stock or what bond? And his answer is always like, look, during this period, if you're able to, this isn't true for everybody because there's people working multiple jobs and there's people on the front lines at hospitals literally working 16 hour days. But he's like, you know, if you're able to, this is the time where you should be investing in yourself. This is a time where you should be transforming your own skill set, where you should be investing. There's so many things that are available for free online. And, you know, if you invest in yourself and you transform yourself, during this period, you're going to come out of it much stronger um, in this world. And that's the best investment you can possibly make. And so I hope that some people are also doing that during this time too. And I just want to chime in here. I know I'm not a panelist, but I would be remiss to say just because this is all AJC's kind of town hall. One thing I wanted to add to Michael's points is, you know, we have a higher learning program. I actually write grants for AJC. And one of the things like in order for people of color to want to be an engineer, go into tech, there are so many other traumas or issues. And like our Saturday school, which I've applied to bajillion grants because it's not necessarily focused in something rooted, but we have kids who want to be engineers, but they have other things. There's programming that's not available and not funded to really root why some of these diverse populations don't go into certain careers, why they are focused on other things other than tech or engineering. And so I think there is an issue of getting the funding to the places that help. And to Michael's other point, one of the challenges for organizations like ours, when you have a fiscal sponsor, Austin doesn't fund organizations that work through fiscal sponsors, right? Like a New York City does or an LA or Chicago, where if you're a small organization that is in the community and does impact, it's really hard for you to get funding in Austin because you have to be a 501c3 and they don't really respect fiscal sponsorship unlike a, most other large cities a lot of the times based on my experience. So that's enough from me. I think it's your turn Maria for questions. No, all very good valid points and it takes me right into the next question of we hear about retention just in the black community when they come here for employment, not staying in Austin just because of the lack of diversity or feeling excluded in their organizations or companies. How can we re recruit and retain diverse talent so that we see that number growing in Austin? And Michael, I'd like to even hear from you to how we can work, the nonprofit sector can work with these corporate companies to make sure that you are bridging that gap between um, black and brown individuals trying to get into the tech industry. Sure. Uh, the first thing I'll say is stop recruiting outside of Austin. That's the number thing I'm going to say. Austin has or brings in about 122 new people per day. And because of that, in the individuals that are coming here have the expertise, have the salary, have the relationship. So they're the ones that are automatically getting jobs over those that have been here uh, for quite some time, but may not have the right, uh, uh, the right connections or the social capital that is needed to really get um, to, to get those opportunities. So when you think about you know, what is needed to keep individuals here, well, number one is they need to afford to live here. Um, so I'm a you know, big believer in technology, but technology is not the only industry that pays well. There are other industries. Um, however, really upskilling and reskilling a whole entire generation of individuals to transition to the workforce. 
um, not just the black community, not just the Latin, the Latin community, um, even though those are the ones that are predominantly on the bottom. We could do the same as I think for those in rural areas, do the same as I think for those um, that are older, that have either retired or looking to transition back into the workforce. We have to rethink the uh, the guidelines that we have so that we have been um, following for the past years and will really change what this looks like when we think about developing. Uh, so instead of recruiting people outside, well, why don't you invest in the organizations that are here in Austin that are doing training development um, for the individuals that, are, that, that either live right now or fit here, right? Um, that could be from an institution, that could be through Austin Freenet, uh, through, through, them, through Austin Area Urban League. These are organizations that are doing training and development, looking to assist you all with talent to really solve this pipeline issue, not just for employers, but also for the city of Austin. Because if we're not being able, if we're not developing people, they won't, they won't be able to get the jobs to afford to live here. The second thing is people want community. Um, four years ago, when we, when we uh, first started, there was a lot of the same narrative that individuals were leaving Austin because of lack of diversity and they couldn't afford to live here. Um, since then, we have been consistent with programming. We have so many different events that have been created from different organizations, not just Autumn, uh, but we have Austin Air Urban League Young Professionals, there's Black Women Talk Tech, there's Hispanic Hackers, there's Nesby, like all these organizations that realize that, okay, we need to step up our consistency in order to create a community for people so they know where to go to find people who look like them. Because predominantly, when you walk in Austin, you predominantly see white people. You don't get to see a lot of non-whites unless you're going to East Austin. Maybe you're going to Pflugerville or you're going way south, depending on where you are. So instead, we needed to create that by creating a place and a platform so people can know what's going on. And since then, we've launched so many different um, hashtags. There's hashtag ATX in color. And anybody could go and see and really experience you know, Black Austin and what that looks like. Um, we've partnered with other organizations to make sure that we are not duplicating efforts. So instead of having um, 17 different job fairs, no, you know, let's collaborate. Let's make sure we have the right job fair, get the right partners, and ensure that we're sharing that we're sharing resources. Uh, so outside of ensuring that we are not recruiting from outside of Austin, we are investing and developing the local talent that's here in Austin. That's here in Austin. We are being consistent with our programming. And we are over collaborating and over communicating. I cannot press that last one enough. Like we have to make sure that everybody knows what everybody is doing. That is the only way we're really able to see the impact that we want to see. I want to contribute a couple things. One, Francis, I hadn't thought about the fact, you know, the fiscal agent piece, but I've, you know, sat on 20 plus foundation boards and I know you're absolutely right. Maria, I think Maria and I, I want to, I want to try an experiment. And I want to see if EF might be able to be a clearinghouse for some digital divide startups. Um, I think that, that if we vet the app, if we vet the request first, and then I call up some foundations and certainly collaborating with Michael Nellis over at, Michael Nellis over at Austin Community Foundation, maybe we can help bridge uh, some of that. And, you know, I think I'll also see um, grant applications that I think Eric and Marissa and Blake or Brett or Heather and, you know, might be interested in. Um, so, you know, I have no um, past demonstrated practice at this to say that it will be successful. But I think Marissa and I can do a small experiment with you and some others and let's give it a try and see if that'll be helpful. 
Um, secondly, on, on the question, you know, we cannot under appreciate what a difference Dell and the University of Texas made by having a huge focus on recruiting African-Americans, uh, professional African-Americans to, to live and work in Central Texas, in Austin. Um, that initiative is now probably 15 years old where it was very focused. I think it's been very successful. It's, it's funny to hear Michael say, you know, you have to get out of downtown because it's true. Um, you know, if you're just walking around, unless we have black and tech today at Capital Factory, um, you know, we don't, we don't see that enough. You know, Michael and, and Francis and, and Chaz, as you guys know, I mean, Capital Factory, when we're back up and open, we're, you know, we're equally as committed to hosting as many events um, in our space as, as we can possibly host to further um, improvements in, in diversity and inclusion in the tech community. Uh, and, um, you know, Michael, I, I would probably debate with you on whether we recruit from outside but I sure agree with you that we need to invest a whole lot more in the people and the organizations that exist here, which is why I want to try this clearinghouse as an experiment. One, one really uh, simple idea. I mean, it's a very profound um, experience, but it's this won't take me a long time to explain is if you haven't taken uh, beyond diversity, courageous conversations, absolutely take that. I've had, I'm having every single manager level and above person do that at data.world. We were doing a lot of hiring. I think, you know, we're going to be a company that's going to be a really big company in Austin. And if I seed that now with people having that knowledge, you know, and I thought I was pretty up to speed, but it taught me a lot. And it was a pretty profound experience. And, and everybody I've talked to says the same thing. I think Mayor Adler, Eugene, said that every, every citizen in Austin should take it and we'd be a better city as a result. Um, so, you know, so I'm starting with, with manager level in the company because those are the people that are doing the hiring and really setting the tone. But eventually I'll probably have everybody in the company, period, take that course. So anyways, you know, pay attention to when that's next uh, going on. And I guess it's, uh, I guess, I don't know. I don't know if they're doing it now in this age with uh, Zoom or if they're going to wait until. It's just thinking that, Brett, you know, we had it scheduled. You, me, and Josh were hosting a Capital Factory, Maria, what, like April 24th, I think. 24th and yeah. 25th we were hosting. Maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to circle back with Glenn and, and Christopher and see if we can't. Um, reschedule that as a virtual event. Yeah, it's a tough one to do virtually. I will say, like, there's a there, there's a there's a pretty there's a couple of pretty profound moments where you, it's it's a lot easier if you're there in person. But, yeah. One of the points that I think is important to keep in mind too, with regards to diversity and talent, is it's not just about recruiting; it's about keeping that diversity at your company once you have them. And I learned this, you know, I had, you know, areas of strength and weakness where I learned that culturally there were these underlying 
assumptions and stereotypes um, being imposed on groups that um, it made it hard for certain groups to want to stay at the company. So that training that Brett just mentioned and Eugene was talking about, or some format of it is so critical to the broader employee base, because even if you recruit them, that doesn't mean they stay if they don't feel included as part of the organization. And I don't mean to use the word they, but um, I just can't stress enough the cultural necessity to make sure that everybody feels it um, because recruiting is only half the battle. You got to keep them. I'm going to build just one other point on this. Sorry, Francis. But, um, you know, I think when we think big about this, this both Michael and Brett mentioned um, just education and our educational institutions and the, the challenge that that creates. And I think that uh, ultimately, you know, if there's a, you know, one potential silver lining to this pandemic is it's going to shake up our institutes of higher education. And, um, and maybe that could be a good thing because that's a big barrier to equality. Um, I think the, the stat that I've heard different versions of it, but the stat that you shared, Brett, I mean, it, that, that is a major challenge. We have institutions that are just per, perpetrating the wealthy class in the country, and that's got to change. And, and maybe that's something that can come out of this as this really shakes up those institutions. Uh, it's some good that can come out of it. Uh, I'll chime in a little bit just on that comment on the education piece. Uh, because we have to remember, education was first created to prevent certain individuals from getting an education. Uh, it wasn't Blacks, if I remember my wife correctly, so she's um, in grad school for higher ed. Um, it was predominantly created to stop Jewish people from getting their education. Then from there, it pushed on to everybody else inside the community, and education just became a barrier to entry. And now we've allowed the system that was first created to prevent people from getting an education to go on to blow up into the education system that we see today, which is now tied to property taxes and property values. Well, the people who are, do, are giving those valuations are banks, which are giving lower valuations to certain areas, which is why we have the, the um, disparities that we see in the education system. Um, so when we really, really think about the institutional racism that exists, that has added to all these barriers, education is just one of them. And I'm very happy to see COVID-19 shake it up because hopefully this will provide an, an outcome that is different from what current history have uh, created and showed us. Yeah, th thanks for all your thoughts around that. You know, I really wanna ask this next question because I hope we can take maybe one or two questions from our attendees. but. I mean, for a non-tech person, I really, we really at AJC have to ask this techie course question for us. But you know, the reality of it is, is that a lot of people have been talking about using technology to track behaviors of infected persons. And to be honest, I've read articles where that sounds like a great idea for some, but AJC, which is constantly trying to reduce the over-policing of black and brown bodies, this kind of like sounds like a red flag, right? So it's like, if we can track if they have COVID, we could track for any and everything in the book. And so I think I have uh, Brett kind of kicking this off, but I really want to just talk about, you know, even on like a very basic level, just even talking about the pros and cons of say this technology, or just in general, when we're talking about new technologies and the considerations and the humanity that we have to kind of like really consider. Whereas like there, are, I don't know if anyone else has seen, but there are people who really believe this is exactly what we should do.
Was that, sorry, Francis, was that directed at me? Yeah, let's let you kick it off and everyone else can chime in. So, so, so can you, can you reframe the question? Uh -oh. Understand the, just clarify it for me a bit. Yeah, so, you know, there's been, um, there's been a lot of discussion. I know that like Facebook and Google have looked into the aggressive tracking of people if you test positive for COVID, like basically tracking yeah. where these people go. And so just kind of talking around that um, idea, this would be a, yeah, something, so I guess. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, you know, so I mean, I think, so here's, here's, the, here's the deal with that. I mean, you know, Apple and Google put out their kind of APIs, but people need to build the apps. You know, one person that's building um, the app in Austin is Tarun. Um, and if, if, uh, if, if you don't know him, he's a good person to know. So he, he's, he's contacted us and asked us if we can be the data backing for that. But I think that the right way for this to, to happen is it's, it's gonna have to be opt-in. I mean, it, you know, for it to really be equal, it has to be, it has to be people that are opting in because they care about fighting COVID-19 and they care about um, the tracking, you know, in that fight. And I think that that's a tall order right now. I'm not that um, confident, unfortunately. I wish I could say I was. I wish I could say like, I'm highly confident that, you know, that this is gonna be all over the US, but we are in a real fight right now in the United States between liberty and commerce and um, prioritizing COVID-19 lives. I mean, it literally it is a huge, huge battle right now. And even what I see happening in our city, our, our, our city really bothers me. I mean, like the fact that I go out there to pick up food and, you know, 50% plus of the people waiting in line aren't even wearing a mask. I mean, the most basic thing that you would do in almost any Asian country that understands, you know, I mean, you have a piece of glass on a salad bar that protects you from sneezing on the, uh, on the salad dressing, but you can't bother to put on a mask. And it's, and it's, and frankly, it's mostly really young people. And the way I kind of read that is they're like, look, you know, it's not going to kill me, but they they could be asymptomatic and they could get someone sick where it kills them or it infects, you know, their grandmother or their grandfather or people that they really care about. And so, um, so I, 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 I wish I could say, I really wish I could say that I'm optimistic on this point, that, that you would just have massive numbers of people opt in. I don't think you can do it uh, surreptitiously. I think that that's way too fraught with all types of danger. Um, and I think that that'll have a huge backlash a huge technology backlash. Anytime anything's been done surreptitiously in technology, it has a it has a massive backlash. So, sorry to be a downer on that. I wish I could be, I wish I could be an upper. But but I I just I, I mean just in our city, which I consider you know it's one of the most educated cities per capita in the nation, and it's a city where we have a tremendous amount of conscientiousness. We're we're. You know, I, I'm not even bullish on us doing it right here, 
in terms of uh, testing and, 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 and tracking and everything else. And I love Mayor Adler. I'm, I'm a huge Mayor Adler fan. I, I don't even think it's that much of a Mayor Adler problem. I think it's more of a Governor Abbott problem who's overruling the, the, the mayor and not being able to impose any type of fines or anything else. You go over to Israel and if you're not wearing a mask, there's a federal law that you have to pay $60 fine. We'll give people a ticket for jaywalking in this city, but we won't give them anything for not wearing a mask and not socially distancing and anything else. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too hopeful on this one, unfortunately. I do think though, sorry, Eugene, I do think we can, there is a, a to your question, Francis, that there is a myth that I think we can bust in terms of, I, I, look, I understand the reluctance on um, the fact that in crises, there's a tendency to encroach on civil liberties. You know, 9-11 was a certain example of that. But um, but there is a way technologically to do this contact tracing issue in a way that maintains privacy. Um, and the cited apps, you know, do that. I, I, I don't disagree with Brett that there's probably an issue with people adopting it for other reasons. Um, but there is a way to do contact tracing that is, um, which is what the Facebook and Google one does, that it does maintain sort of privacy of information to the uh, to the individuals and can be, if it was adopted, could actually be, I think, a really useful tool um, because it's similar to your mask comment. I mean, I would certainly, if I were to contract this virus, I would certainly want to have done the responsible thing where my path could be traced and people that I came in contact with could be notified and those apps enable that to happen. And that's a responsible thing to do, in my opinion. Francis, I wanted to weigh in with, with hindsight, and that is during the last epidemic, what, what we didn't do that we should have done. So this was the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, and, and it, it, is, it addresses a little bit of what you're saying, you know, black and brown people aren't real eager for, you know, authority to get more, more, um, traceability on us because that hadn't gone well. Well, imagine, you know, gay men back in the early 90s when you absolutely would be fired. I mean, fast forward two years when my bank found out I was gay, um, they had a special board meeting and tried firing. But, um, you know, so people said, well, we, we should do trace, we should do tracing and, um, and notification. And we, we wouldn't do that we, because we couldn't, we couldn't disclose who our partners were because we would be outing them and it was illegal. And they would be busted from the families and busted for their jobs. There was, even the, there was even a recommendation that we quarantine with great compassion and great medical care the people who became sick of AIDS, with AIDS. Um, and... and Absolutely, we wouldn't allow that to happen. Though it happened in Cuba, um, and 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 probably many, many millions of people would not be sick today from HIV that had that contracted it. The one thing that we did, and it was all, all for money, is um, I think in 1994. Ryan White funding was gonna run out. We didn't know if it would be renewed. And Austin had to demonstrate 4,000 cases of HIV in order to draw down money. 
at that point we had $760,000 in total from the city and the state in, in national in Austin to help at that point men living with HIV. We would get $4.5 million more if we could qualify for Ryan White. So I personally, I mean, as chair of the HIV commission begged gay men who were HIV positive to tell their doctor to let me go in and count their cases. We did, you know, we did untraceable numbers, yada, yada, but, but it had a huge payoff. Um, the only way I think this community is going to opt in is if we articulate the huge payoff. And if a bunch of us come together and promise, I mean, <clears throat> my call just before this one with, was kind of this kitchen cabinet with David Seamus, the CEO of the Obama Foundation. And we were talking about what's not happening today that should be happening. And that's that, you know, conservative and liberal and black, brown and white, I mean, we're all under the same threat. And not, not to dig on anybody, but, but the leadership of the country hasn't, hasn't used this opportunity to call for greater good. Um, and, and at times like this, we do step up. So um, what, what, what payoff can we articulate to all of us if we opt in? And if we give a little bit of a, a privacy away, that will not only help us, but it must help us and others. And I think that's, that's what we need to do to move forward. I'll just chime in a little bit, just immediately talk about this opt-in option. Uh, the opt-in option isn't really an option for everyone. Um, and that's where we think about other factors kind of to what Marissa was talking about, um, that there's other factors that prevent someone from doing something or not doing something. And when you think about someone tracking your moves, then you think about, okay, well, what happens when I'm alone as an individual, right? What is going to be my interaction with them? And predominantly speaking, for, for those that are from the global majority, so Black and Hispanic, they are the ones who are mostly targeted when they are not uh, following social distance rules, uh, more random masks. Uh, when you compare how uh, they are treated in their communities versus, I believe it was Colorado, I believe it was Colorado, where they end up on Mother's Day, had you know, violated the governor's rule, didn't care, and the place was packed. No one was, was wearing masks. Everybody was there. Every single table was full. There was a line out the door. Police came. There was no arrest. There was nothing. But then on the contrary of that, you hear about police breaking up birthday parties in black neighborhoods. You see them um, hitting and abusing um, individuals for not uh, following social distancing. So then when you see the, the, the complete difference interaction between white communities and non-white communities, and now we add on this fact of an additional layer of surveillance, it's like, whoa, time out, time out, time out. This is not a good approach for us because now we're giving away more of our privacy and more of our civil liberties that aren't being held up. Because even if we are tested, well, we don't have, and this is generalizing, we don't have the, the right or the same um, access to healthcare. So even if we are sick, we could go get help. Well, no, not necessarily. 
Um, we don't have the same luxury from our job to take off or to go um, call out or get vacation time. We don't have those luxuries because majority of us aren't in the right industries to offer that. Uh, so when we think about those barriers, you know, this idea of training calls really scares and uh, puts individuals, even th those that are undocumented, those that uh, are afraid of bias or those that don't have the proper resources, it really puts them in a, in a tough situation when they have to really think about, okay, am I going to ride this virus out or am I going to out myself, which then make this, that, that may make the situation even worse. A lot of heavy conversation on that last one, but that discussion can go on and on, but we do have to wrap up here. So thank you all for everyone that provided input. We did have one direct question that I wanted to ask. I'd be remiss if I did not ask this question, something pressing on, on a lot of people's minds here. With all the massive layoffs that have happened with your specific um, companies, are you guys hiring? And if so, are you hiring for entry level positions? And what advice would you have to those that were in the tech industry or looking to get in the tech industry during um, COVID-19 and the challenges of just finding a job in general with all the layoffs that have been taking place? We are hiring. We're hiring uh, a lot right now. Um, we're small numbers though, but you know, when you can really make a difference in a community when you join at this stage. I mean, one of the proudest stats I have about Bizarre Voice is that there have now been 48 companies started by former Bizarre Voice people. And a lot of those people were in pretty early. We're very focused on diversity at Data.World. We're B Corporation. It's actually deep in our DNA. We're also measured on it. We report publicly on how diverse we are or not. And um, we've been doing a lot to get into the communities where people know that there's opportunities and there's all types of great organizations in Austin that you can get involved with um, to really tap into different diverse communities. And, and, uh, and we do a lot of that. Um, so uh, in terms of what can you do as an individual you know, one of our best employees is a guy who used to be an incredible tennis player. Like he really wanted to go pro, didn't quite make that. And he doubled down in terms of his personal um, development and focused on becoming a data scientist. And he got his master's in data science from a university where he could do that from home. And this is an incredible time to, you know, to, to really upgrade yourself and to really invest in yourself. So hopefully, hopefully uh, people will do that. Um, and, you know, hopefully they'll do it with passion. Hopefully that they, they know that they're not just going into digital age companies because of the money, but they're going in because they're really passionate about whatever the mission is of that company. Because if you're passionate about it, it's going to drive you to uh to take action it's going to drive you to really put your heart and soul in it and that's the right way to do it if you're going to join a startup yeah i agree with brett um wholeheartedly um so we're also hiring at aceable i think a lot of companies in the tech space um are actually thriving it's unfortunate to say the word thriving in this environment but um we are seeing growth and we are investing 
So we are hiring. Um, and, uh, and what I think you'll find in a lot of tech companies is many will able to be aggressively um, focused on how to maximize growth right now. So those are the companies as you're looking at job searches, I would encourage you to think about the categories and the sectors where there will be high growth. Um, you can probably easily figure out what those are. In my case, again, online training, that's going to be an area of growth. Um, and my advice um, on how you, how you um, think through your job search, I'll, I'll use a personal story if that's okay, since I just went through this. Um, think about what you really care about, you know, and, and that means it's a much more surgical job search than a sort of broad sweeping job search, but be very surgical about um, sort of your cause and, and the goals that you have around the next job and then find the people that are there. And then I bet you Austin's a very small town, use your network to go get introduced. Um, it, there's so many applicants right now because there are so many people unemployed that it's hard to sift through. And so um, the connections matter, the references matter, the network matters, um, and have and really caring about it versus being a random application really goes a long way. Uh, we're we're also hiring. Um, I'll I'll be it. I would say uh, you know we're being pretty uh, targeted with our hiring. Um, because it's, you know, I'd say we're, we're doing well in this time frame, but this isn't, this is a, a headwind for us. It's not a, uh, it's not a driver of our business. It's overall a headwind, um, but we're being opportunistic. And, and uh, I, I'm a believer that when you have these kind of challenges, you lean into them, you try to find the opportunity in them and finding the right talent um, at a time when there's the availability of it is one of the ways that we do that. So we're hiring, but we're being really directed. So to some of the points that were made, I mean, people, um, need to really have a sort of a unique um, sort of value add and differentiate themselves, especially in, in this time frame. And I'll second Marissa's point about sort of the connections. And uh, I'm going to follow up with Michael later to connect with your organization, because I want to make sure that we're not over relying on those connections that actually creates a barrier for the communities that we want to hire from. So, um, but yeah, we are, uh, we are trying to be opportunistic in this time frame. I'll just yeah, say I'll Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, at the Entrepreneurs Foundation, uh, you know, we're a small nonprofit. We're not hiring, but we are about to um, launch a hiring page for Culturati companies and Culturati members, where Culturati members will be able to share. This is a, a demonstration project. We're creating it on LinkedIn. One of our Culturati fellows, Mitch McKay, is going to launch this for us in the next few weeks, um, where Culturati member companies and Culturati individuals can post about the jobs that they'll have available or the jobs that they're seeking. We'll allow non-Culturati folks to, um, to come on the site, but not to post. And Maria, you and I should talk more about how we can uh, make sure the visibility for any of those jobs get, get more broad. We, we have, we have a great gender diversity track record in Culturati and we have in our, our race track record sucks. So we need to um, open that up a little bit more. Start, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, so I'll be quick. So similar to Eugene, uh, so we're a nonprofit, so we're not hiring on, on that end, but we have over 1,400 jobs on our job board. I'm in countless conversations with different groups that are hiring, and I just put my email in the chat as well. 
So feel free to reach out to me if I don't have a job for you. I'm pretty sure I know someone who does. Um, and if I can help you, I connect you with someone in the right direction. So I intend to do the help. By all means, feel free to reach out. And of course, go to our website, sign up for our newsletter. We are always pushing out content that makes sense for you all. Well, I want to thank our uh, panelists for their time. Uh, we want to be respectful. Um, we were we were trying to get out um, by uh, seven thirty. Um, but yes. Um, so I want to. And Maria, do you want to say anything else too? I'm just typing away over here. It wasn't on mute. Look at technology. I just want to say thank you all so much. This is an important topic to many people, especially with Austin being such a huge tech hub. Thank you so much for all your insight. And I can't wait to see the synergy that's created after this with everyone that's on the panel and those even that are attending. I see a lot of great things happening here in the Austin community. Yeah, and so we're going to actually, we'll take this recording and we'll share it. Uh, which is where we've actually seen a lot of traction. Um, so we hope the conversations continue. Uh, feel free um, to reach out to me and Maria. Thanks again. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Have Thanks, a great everybody. Bye, everyone. Stay safe.